Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. It is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is a a season in the liturgical calendar that we celebrate along with churches all over the world and for a long, long time. Advent comes from the Latin Adventus. It means arrival or coming. It means we're not there yet. And in this season leading up to Christmas time, we induce a sense of anticipation by remembering all the ways that the world prepared or did not prepare for Jesus' arrival in our world, in our hometowns, and in our hearts. In this upcoming year of reading and uh, speaking and studying together, Matthew will be our primary storyteller of the story of Jesus. And for tonight, I'm going to read from Matthew. We're going to jump ahead, strangely, in Matthew's Gospel to chapter 12 to pick up that quotation from Isaiah 42, the responsive reading that John led tonight. And you need to know that Matthew 12 is about midpoint in Matthew's telling of the story of Jesus. Um, We'll start in uh, verse 14. Well, we won't read verse 14. We'll start in verse 15. And in the verse just before verse 14, the VRPs, the very religious persons, have begun to intensify their conspiracy against him. They are angry at his upset of the status quo. They are afraid And so they've begun to plot how they can entrap him. And so we're picking up the story just after that in verse 15. When Jesus became aware of this, that is to say their plot to entrap him, he departed. Many crowds followed him and he cured all of them and he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is so pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not wrangle or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not quench a smoldering wick until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Maybe the problem with Christianity these days is that there are just too damn many of us. I mean, Jesus was always trying to keep it small, you know? He was not a fan of fans. Not big on big crowds. If, if I had a marker board up here, I could exercise my terrible drawing skills to illustrate, but I'll trust your imagination. Think of a pond and a pebble dropped in the pond. The pebble is Jesus, and the concentric rings around his little splash are the people around him. The first tightest ring holds 12 
the named ones he calls the apostles, the ones he sends out sometimes as his advance team, the ones imbued with a bit of his power and entrusted with his message. You know, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Matthew himself, etc. And a handful of women whose names we also know, who travel with him, who support his work with their money and their friendship. Mary of Magdala, Susanna, Joanna, Salome, the other Mary, another Mary, etc. On the next string out are the ones known as disciples, the ones who have let some other things go in order to hang out with him full time, the ones who are his students and devotees. We mostly don't know their names, but we know what they do. They follow, they listen, they travel, they try. Sometimes Jesus offers the disciples private teaching that not everyone else is getting. I don't know how many we would count on this circle, but probably only about as many as Jesus could know and trust. And if he's human like us, some research on human relational capacity suggests that it's probably not more than about 120 or so. That's about as many people as most of us can hold in our heads and our hearts. 120. It's a good number. Now, finally, for our little taxonomy of the people around Jesus in the Gospels, there's the broad circle known as the crowds. As the stories about him spread across Palestine, and because he's traveling with an entourage that's too big not to be noticed, it becomes increasingly impossible for him to move freely or anonymously. He is surrounded by these flash mobs that coagulate around the house where he's staying or the seaside campground where he has stopped for the night, and they always want something. Food, healing, a word of comfort, all of the above and they mostly go home when he moves on. Crowds can be hundreds of people. The Gospels sometimes insist that there are thousands of them, and they make everybody nervous, the VRPs, the very religious persons, and Jesus alike. The VRPs don't like the crowds because they will draw the empire's attention to their neck of the woods, and that's never good. Jesus doesn't like the crowds because well, why? I mean, isn't it his purpose to share the good news of God's reign with literally everyone? And wouldn't it be a sign of his success if people on the edges of his ministry moved sequentially, commitment by commitment, closer to the inner circle, from stranger to crowd, from crowd to disciple, from disciple to leader, supporter, loyal friend? Wouldn't he be declared the de facto winner if he could get more and more and more people to take his name, wear his jewelry, subscribe to his newsletter? Buy the t-shirt that would declare his followers' loyalty and assert their insider status? Doesn't he want that? Or maybe he understood on some level that crowds are dangerous, whether they love you or hate you, and they will surely do both. They can turn violent when they are afraid. And however high the pedestal they've put you on, that's how far you'll fall when they knock it out from under you. Worse than that, when there are enough of them, they start to think they own you, that they are the trusty transmitters of your message. We'll take it from here, we can imagine the crowds saying to Jesus. 
There are lots of us, and we know how to get lots more. And that's something that Jesus is deeply suspicious of, yeah? And trying like crazy to avoid. It's an interesting exercise to read any of the Gospels straight through, looking for the crowds and noting Jesus' reaction to them. In Matthew's story, he literally uses the geography to make it a little harder for them to get too close. In Matthew 5, for example, he sees the crowds and climbs a mountain. Not everybody brought shoes for that level of hiking that day, so it's only the disciples who follow him up there and sit down for his famous Sermon on the Mount. But when he comes down from the mountain in Matthew chapter 8, the crowds are there waiting for him. And he scoots around a little bit, hoping to throw, him off, throw them off his scent, but they just keep catching up until finally he asks his closest friends to ferry him across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. His disciples follow him, Matthew 8, 23, and they successfully ditch the crowds. But on the other side, they run into the kind of trouble that requires exorcism and therefore draw a new crowd. So it's back in the boat they go to try and sneak back home without attracting too much attention. We could go on like this, cataloging all the times that Jesus slips away from populous places or dissuades potential disciples from coming along on his travels. Matthew 8, 18, for example, when people apply for admission to the discipleship circle, and basically he says it's just not a good time. Or when he insists that the beneficiaries of his miracles tell absolutely no one what he has done for them. Matthew 8, 4, a leper cleanse of disease. Matthew 9, 30, blind beggars sternly ordered not to name names now that they can see, and so many more. Or when he literally tells the crowds to go the hell away before he'll raise one eyebrow to help a soul in need. Matthew 9, 25, when he will not raise Jairus' daughter from the dead until the crowds skedaddle. There are so very many more. It's not that he doesn't care about the lived experiences of the humans that make up those crowds. And he's not a recluse. He will travel from synagogue to synagogue, town to town, repairing every broken body and broken heart he encounters, preaching and embodying the good news of God's reign for the crowds that inevitably appear wherever he goes. He had compassion for the crowd, Matthew says in 9.36, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he wants to do for them what they need most. He just does not want to be captured by their attention, harnessed for their purposes. And he knows that crowds are like that. They have a will of their own. And they will eat you up if you let them. Indeed, crowds of Christians are some of the most dangerous animals on earth. They will crusade you, riding into battle with crosses on their shields, the last thing you'll see before they run you through with their sword. They will burn you at the stake with Bibles in their hands. 
They will torture you for a confession of faith and baptize your broken, bleeding body, not caring if you drown while it's happening. They will invent manifest destiny and march you down a trail of tears in the name of God. They will steal your children and cut their hair and give them European names and teach them to speak the king's English because Jesus spoke the king's English, they'll say. Crowds of Christians will colonize you, pretending to be missionaries. They will exploit your resources, including your land and your very own body, to build wealth for the reign of God. They will justify your enslavement with Holy Scripture and offer you salvation with no liberation. Crowds of Christians will hound and harass the school boards and the library boards, and the city councils, the legislatures, and the judiciaries in the name of Jesus, their Lord. They will overwhelm the Arlington Library Board and the Arlington City Council with meetings and phone calls and emails and letters with their daily demand that LGBTQ plus existence be erased from consciousness, disappeared from the shelves of the public library system. This is happening now still, so that the compromise that was reached in last month's library board meeting is now trashed because crowds of Christians have trashed it in Jesus' name. Amen. No, Jesus did not care much for crowds, then or now, I'd surmise. Did he want everyone to have a chance to experience the embrace of the God who made us and knows us and loves us best of all? Absolutely. Did he want to amass a giant army of Christian soldiers who would twist his good news into a mandate to march through history, trampling people caught in the way of their triumphalist rise to power? The prophets of old spoke of this often how God's agent in this world would come eventually, not as an avenging superhero, not as a commander of armies, not with an agenda to overthrow powers and ascend to supremacy. Or if they did say things like that sometimes in their own wishful thinking about how nice it would be to have a Messiah who would kick some imperial ass, trounce some tyrants, redistribute the economy, and stick around to enforce the new social order. Well... There was always also a consistent minority report of the smallness of the Messiah God had in mind all along. Take Micah's oracle concerning Bethlehem, for example. One of the little clans of Judah, he calls Bethlehem in Micah chapter 5, a small city outside the hubbub of important Jerusalem. Bethlehem from which the littlest brother, David, the shepherd boy, the cute bisexual musician with mad slingshot skills, was improbably selected to be Israel's next king. And it'll happen again, Micah predicted. Tiny little Bethlehem will be the birthplace of God's salvation. And Isaiah? Well... Isaiah was fairly obsessed with just how low a human being could go and still be considered Messiah material. Could you curse at them? Call them filthy names? Yep. Could you beat their body, break their bones? 
Could you turn the crowds against them? Make their name a byword to the very people they came to rescue? Sure. None of the degradation human beings can imagine for each other could steal God's blessing from God's chosen one, the prophet said, because that's what God had been imagining all along. Because God knew that the broken world breaks people, especially small people, especially people who are poor, or people who are kept in their place by unjust systems, or people whose very identities are feared and despised. And God had been imagining a way of being in the world that would align God's self alongside the small ones, the ones who were pushed to the edge, the ones who were barely hanging on, the ones whose flame was just about to go out. That's where my Messiah will land. God told Isaiah, and Isaiah told the VRPs, and eventually Jesus read it or heard it read, maybe in the Nazareth synagogue when he came of age as an adolescent, and he took it 15 years or so later as his personal vocational playbook. Here is my servant, the one I chose, the one I love, the one with whom my soul is so happy. I'll put my spirit on this one. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He won't wrangle or cry out loud. No one will hear his voice in the streets. He won't break a bruised reed. He won't quench a smoldering wick until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles hope. Gentiles? Gentiles. Huh. A Jewish Messiah sent for Gentile justice? Gentile hope? It sounds about right. God's Messiah sent directly to the ones on the most marginalized margins, the ones kept out of the covenant, the ones everybody thinks God likes least. Just look for the one who keeps looking for them, Isaiah said. That's the Messiah God imagines for us. Not a crowd pleaser not an influencer or a tastemaker or a populist, not a manipulator, not an attention seeker, not a pace setter, not a triumphalist, not thirsty or craven, not hoping for coverage or celebrity, not counting likes or retweets, not coercive or controlling or insistent or even loud. Non-toxic masculinity, we might say, also known as gentle and fair personhood not taking up more than his fair share of the space, waiting his turn in conversation, listening, always listening, patiently standing with or squatting down next to or having a seat beside each bruised reed and each smoldering wick he encounters, quietly coaxing each languishing spirit back to health, tenderly nourishing each diminished life until it sparks back to its own right size. The missional logistics team of our church has asked me to convene a Galileo team 
I will not say committee. A Galileo team to concentrate our attention on our first missional priority to do justice for LGBTQ plus people in seasons to come. We're thinking of calling it the Justice League. We can take a vote. <laughs> the first meeting is gonna happen soon, like early December, yeah, I know. Even during this wildly busy season when the days are too short and you've got way too much to do. But friends, the 88th session of the Texas legislature begins on January 10th. Yeehaw. The Arlington Library Board meets again on December, December 15th. The crowds of Christians who are trampling trans kids and queer beloveds are already very busy. And so must we be. Which means we're going to have to figure out how to proclaim justice, how to bring hope the way Jesus did. Gently, with deep regard for bruised reeds and smoldering wicks, with compassionate understanding that crowds of Christians feel dangerous to many people, rightly so. This is how we get ready this Advent season, having inherited the spirit of the living Christ, having learned from Jesus, learning from Isaiah, how God values the smallest ones, the ones most dearly done for, the ones who have already been counted out. Here we find our vocation. Here we fulfill our calling. We are right where we belong, beloveds, out here on the edge of town in this rented ramshackle building, not very big, not very powerful, co-conspirators in a gospel that keeps us small, right where we belong. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, Go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.